Welcome to the Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. And I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is episode two of season one, where we're going to look at chapter two, What Lucy Found There. Welcome back, Phil. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah. So in our last episode, Phil, we left our four main characters all in a house while Lucy was wandering through this magical land um, toward a lamppost. Do you think we need to say anything else or can we just jump into the, the next chapter summary? I think we can just jump in. Okay, take it away. All right, it's my turn. So uh, Lucy, a girl or daughter of Eve, meets Mr. Tumnus, who invites her over for tea. After food and conversation, including tales of the fantastical creatures and settings of the land of Narnia, Lucy announces that she does have to leave. Mr. Tumnus starts acting pretty strangely and reveals that he is a bad fawn because he has taken service under the White Witch, who we learn is the reason for winter and also a pretty terrible person based on what he's afraid the White Witch might do to her. And uh, Mr. Tumnus plans to hand Lucy over. Uh, Lucy convinces him to let her go and returns to the mansion, leaving the fawn with just her handkerchief. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, this is what's going to be really fun about doing these summaries um, is I have actually not seen what you had uh, come up with. And there's some parts that like I was like, oh, I probably wouldn't have mentioned that. And some parts I was like, oh, I would have forgotten all about that if you hadn't said that. This will be fun to see what you and I kind of pick out here. So I really enjoyed that. And I think I think details like the handkerchief might sound weird at first, but it's kind of like in a movie where you go back and you like if you watch a crime drama or like a mystery type thing, you start noticing things. And I think as you watch new stuff, you also like, oh, they really like kind of lingered on that book that was on the desk for a while. Uh I wonder what that must mean. Um, So now I'm like super aware of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, Phil, you mentioned in that very first sentence that Lucy and you you said she's a daughter of Eve. So tell me more about that. Sure. So there's already it's already odd that there's a fawn, um, which Lucy most likely (laughs) has not seen before. Um, And then the fawn refers to her as a daughter of Eve, uh, referring to Adam and Eve, probably from the book of Genesis in the Bible. And uh, it's also just a weird way to refer to people. And you also get some weird references like the um, the place that Lucy is from is now going to be referred to as Spare Oom instead of Spare Room. Um, and this kind of shows that there's a different world here and they refer to things differently. It's like going to another country, but, you know, by a factor of 10. And so we're already kind of like starting to learn a little bit more about this world just based on the vocabulary that they use. Well, yeah. And you mentioned about how he, you know, calls it a different land and stuff. We even get an idea um, that this world is not aware of our world either, but somewhat is because they're referring to things like daughter of Eve and we'll hear son of Adam, but not in the same kind of way that we would maybe think of our own world. And so C.S. Lewis does not give us a lot of answers there. And actually, when we first hear this son of Adam, daughter Eve, um, this is what Mr. Tumnus says. He says, how stupid of me, but I've never seen a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve before. I am delighted. That is to say, and then it stopped as if it had been going to say something it had not intended, but had remembered in time. And I love this line right here at the beginning, because we're not quite sure what to make of this character who we now know as Mr. Tumnus. He's odd looking right he's a fawn so we should probably acknowledge that that's he's half uh, man half goat he seems to be somewhat nice and almost actually more afraid of lucy than anything else and then we get this this kind of hint of foreshadowing here so he says this 
he begins to say something and he stopped. And I mentioned this in the last episode, but I read this book every year with uh, with fourth graders. And this is always a really fun part to read, whether someone else is reading it out loud or in groups or I'm reading it. Like everyone's just kind of like, wait, 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 wait. Why, why did he stop saying that? It's it's really fun because even you know children are picking up of like, oh my goodness, that's not good. And I think a lot of times when we as adults read children's literature, we sometimes don't give children the benefit of the doubt that they're smart and they can pick up on these different literary devices. A lot of times we're like, oh, that's just for the adults, right? Like, right. and they're like, oh no, the kids totally got that. Like they're like, that's that's weird. And now. You know, when I'm thinking about this as an adult, I'm like, oh, I bet the kids don't really get it until he just says, no, I'm kidnapping you. But like from the <laughs> almost the very beginning, the kids are kind of like this. This guy's creepy, you know, especially right. in in 21st century uh, culture where like we've we've taught our kids you know, you have to be wary of strangers, which is a, a good thing. We've, we've you know, we want to we want to be safe students. My students, at least, are much more wary of strangers to begin with than maybe Lewis's audience would have been back in the in the 50s. Sure. So after this creepy or at least somewhat odd interaction, Mr. Tumnus gets really friendly again. He actually explains that we get the first uh, introduction of Narnia. He says, you know, why or how have you come to Narnia? And and Lucy says, Narnia, what's that? Well, this is the land of Narnia, said the Han, where we are now. All that lies between the lamppost and the great castle of Ker Paravel on the eastern sea. And you, you have come from the wild woods of the west. And then we get, you know, kind of this introduction of the whole spare oom thing in the city of wardrobe, which is a really uh, humorous thing. And Mr. Thomas invites her to tea. I love that that transition. It's so smooth. He goes, meanwhile, it is winter Narnia. So now we know that it's winter Narnia. Then he says, it has been forever so long, which is a little bit odd. And he says, and we'll both catch cold. So that's why we need to go have tea. He also throws in a little um, kind of extra little bit where he says the far land of spare um where eternal summer reigns he just kind of assumed that and i wonder like how just how long has it been winter there <laughs> and like he just assumes that it's been summer wherever she's from um then we go to uh Tumnus's house and i love the description it's just this like really warm um you know rock inside in inside of a cave um there's already a wood fire going uh he lights a lamp with a flaming piece of wood. I just imagine him like grabbing a log and lighting a lamp uh-huh. with that. Uh, he puts a kettle on. Even the description of the food they eat, uh, there's a nice brown egg lightly boiled for each of them, uh, sardines on toast, buttered toast, and then toast with honey, and then sugar top cake. You get a very clear sense of what Mr. Tumnus is all about, and it sounds like he's all about comfort. Everything's warm. Everything's well-decorated. Uh, there's lots of carbs uh, <laughs> there. And you also, you you get a sense of like who this person is. He has a lot of books and they have books uh, like the life and the letters of Silenus or nymphs in their ways or men, monks and gamekeepers, a study in popular legend. And these are some pretty weird titles for <laughs> someone like you and I to read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even the last one is, is man a myth? And it kind of helps us start to fill out this world and fill out this character simultaneously. So we're finding out more about Narnia at the same time that we're learning more about Mr. Tumnus, right? Like he's obviously educated, which is weird to think about in and of itself because I don't think about Fonz as being educated. Yeah, um, they're not very good at geography because they don't pay attention. In school, right? He even names going to school, which is an odd 
it's an odd thing. And, you know, <laughs> this whole, it just, yeah, honestly, just, it, it all seems quite weird to me. So he actually starts telling Lucy about Narnia before winter. And I want to read this, this section. Sure. He told about the midnight dances and how the nymphs who lived in the wells and the dryads who lived in the trees came out to dance with the fawns about long hunting parties after the milk-white stag who could give you wishes if you caught him, about feasting and treasure-seeking with the wild red dwarfs and deep mines and caverns far beneath the forest floor, and then about summer when the woods were green and old Silenus on his fat donkey would come to visit them, and sometimes Bacchus himself, and then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Not that it isn't always winter now, he said gloomily. Then to cheer himself up, he took out from its case on the dresser a strange little flute that looked as if it were made of straw and began to play. And the tune he played made Lucy want to cry and laugh and dance and go to sleep all at the same time. There's so much to unpack there. (laughs) I love that last little bit. What kind of song makes you want to cry and laugh and dance and go to sleep all at the same time? That sounds like a very powerful drug that should be Schedule 1 regulated by the government. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's that's incredible. Also, I'm, I'm excited at the end of all of this, we're going to watch the movie. I can't wait to see how they did that part um, with the music. Yeah, it's, you know, going back to what you're saying about her reaction, I think there's magic going on here, right? Again, we're not given a lot of details, but to make you want to cry, laugh and dance and go to sleep, all I, I wonder, not that like Mr. Thomas is doing magic, but if just this idea of these themes kind of have a magical presence here. Um but I want to talk about this picture we get of Narnia with the nymphs, the dryads, the red dwarfs, Silenus, Bacchus. Because we, we get a better idea, like we talked about last time, of the way that you know C.S. Lewis is going to build his world. So this is like an amalgamation of mythologies. You know, We have Bacchus, who's the Roman god of wine. Silenus, who's the Greek companion to Dionysus. And now Dionysus and Bacchus are the same god. They're both the god of wine. But Silenus goes along with Dionysus, the Greek version, and Bacchus is the Roman version. You have nymphs, which are those nature spirits, you know, the dryads and the trees and the naiads. I think it mentioned, does it mention satyrs? Or maybe that's t- not until later, so I'll, I'll wait until that. But you have fauns, and a lot of this is pulling from some Greek and Roman mythologies, but even later on we'll see <laughs> different mythologies put all together. And so C.S. Lewis was very upfront like with wanting to pull from these different things. And this is one of the reasons that another one of his fellow Inklings, uh, Tolkien, hated, maybe not hate, I shouldn't say, but really disliked a lot of his work. Phil, I want to share a quote with you that I found on NPR from about 10 years ago. When I was doing some research for this episode, I was just looking into some of the mythology in Narnia, and I came across this quote about when C.S. Lewis first read this book to Tolkien and some of the other Inklings. And I want to hear your thoughts on J.R.R. Tolkien's thoughts. So we're getting a little meta here. So this is Professor Alan Jacobs from Wheaton College. This is an NPR interview from 2005. He says, But when the Narnia books, when Lewis started reading aloud the draft of the first Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to the little group of people called the Inklings that included Tolkien, Tolkien was horrified. He thought it was a terrible book, and what he especially disliked about it was the way that it ransacked all sorts of different mythologies. You know, here are fawns and centaurs over here, and there are elements of the Christian story over here, and then, whoa, here comes Father Christmas. And this was just maddening to Tolkien because he loved for the imaginative worlds to be completely consistent and coherent and not to bleed into other imaginative worlds. And so it just set his teeth on edge. 
<laughs> There's some harsh words. Yeah. I just I wonder what that must have been like. You know, I I don't actually know what either of these men's personality was like, but I just imagine C.S. Lewis kind of being excited about this story and he's sharing it and like he probably like respected Tolkien and then Tolkien like hates it. He's like, well, still gonna publish it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's interesting too because back in the 30s when um, Tolkien was working on The Hobbit. Lewis was a really big cheerleader for him. He really encouraged him um, with that. And so, you know, I don't know exactly what conver- this is. You know, this is a professor's interpretation of the events, and um, I'm sure he's pulling from factual things. But I don't know exactly how this situation went down. And I, I would be curious, what is the reason that it can't pull from multiple sources in Tolkien's mind? Like, it seems like Tolkien just decided that. Um, and it worked really well for him. And you think about The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, just really, really well done, very consistent across the board. Um, but I'm glad that we have both. Yeah, I think the the beauty is that we do have both of these. And we don't need to dive too far into it because we did last episode. But there's this, I mean, the way that I interact with Narnia is the way that is a different way than I interact with Middle Earth. And it's beautiful. It's, and I used the word last time, I said that Narnia can be inconsistent. Um and again, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it in a way as Tolkien's world is consistent from its origins all the way you know, through the last of his works. Like the Silmarillion makes, you don't have to have read that to understand The Hobbit, but it does fill in that world even more. And it all holds up. It all makes sense. Whereas Narnia, there's still some things as we go further into these books, just, there's some questions that we'll have. But I, again, I've especially as I've gotten older, I've actually enjoyed more of that inconsistency and just being like, well, it's a good story and that's what I'm here for. Right. Um, and that's not to put down uh, Tolkien's Legendarium because I, I love I love that as well. Sure. So let's go on from here, Phil. Lucy falls asleep, um, which is somewhat scary too. I know my students, when we get here, <laughs> like, whoa, 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 whoa. She just fell asleep at a stranger's house and this guy's not even a human. So like... You know, that's yeah, always it's very it's thing. very foolish to close the door on yourself in a, a wardrobe, but totally fine to go to a strange <laughs> fawn's house, spend hours there and then fall asleep. Yeah, absolutely. By yourself. Um, so do you want to talk about Phil? What happens when she wakes up? Yeah, this is extremely well done. Uh, Tumnus starts acting very strange and he starts being very negative about himself. Uh, distresses Lucy. He's like, Mr. Tumnus, Mr. Tumnus, don't, don't, what is the matter? Aren't you well? He describes himself as a bad fawn. He says it several times. He goes, no, I'm a bad fawn. Uh, he's very um, kind of embarrassed because there's a picture of his father on the mantelpiece, and he's like, he would never have done this. And Lucy asks, what? What, I, I think, like, what? And then, like, it gets weirder and weirder, and he starts telling the story about how he kidnapped somebody and he's under service of the White Witch, and that's why he had to do it. And if he doesn't, um, then he'll get in all this trouble. And she doesn't quite get it, but I think that especially, like, even your students, I think, would start to pick up that, like, oh, this is, he's talking about her because you get a few more details as it goes along. And then he reveals that, no, he's kidnapping her right now. Uh, Lucy says, oh, but you won't. And he starts giving more details about what the White Witch will do. And, um, it's just like turning his hooves to like solid hooves and then he won't be able to move. Like it just, it's terrible stuff. Yeah. One of the things that really stands out to me here is C.S. Lewis through Lucy seems to almost admonish 
Mr. Tumnus for also just crying a lot and not being like he's supposed to be ashamed of himself, right? For the way that he's acting in this situation. And as a kid, I never really knew why, why is it so bad that he's upset about something? Like, why is Lucy so she's like shaking him, right? He's like, stop it, stop it at once. And as we were obviously we're doing a podcast where we're reading a um a children's book chapter by chapter. So we're gonna be diving really deeply into these books and maybe even finding things that the that you know we might be reading into things too much, which is totally fine. That's part of the joy of this book is it can we can talk about what it means to us. And when I read this section, it actually pulls me back. And I want to talk about a uh, a, a Christian theme here. And again, to listen to our show, you do not have to be a Christian at all, right? You, that's that's just an added part of this these books. Like you can enjoy these books from a secular perspective as just beautiful, wonderful stories. And then there's this you know added component of of Christian allegory and other things as well too. And I feel like our show can be the same way. I, I hope. Do you feel the same way, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. But I wanted to pull something from the Book of Psalms because I was reading this section, hearing Mr. Tumnus after a, you know, a moral failure on his part. He's in the middle of kidnapping a child. And I don't want to contrast that with, with King David's lament in Psalm 51. I'm just going to read just a couple of uh, verses from that. And then I want to hear your thoughts on this, Phil. So okay. Psalm 51, 7 through 12 says, uh, Clean me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And when I read this, I hear, you know, this is after um, David has been with Bathsheba and he is lamenting over this. And there's sadness and there's um grief, but there's also like joy and, and hope, right? Like create in me a pure heart, oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's hope because of, of God's mercy and mercy and grace. But in a world without God or in a world without Aslan here, I almost wonder if C.S. Lewis is painting a picture that there is no hope in failure, that with Mr. Tumnus's failure, this is it. Like there isn't any grace or mercy for him. Do you, I mean, do you think I'm reading too far into this or do you think this could be something Lewis might've been doing? I think there's definitely something there. I mean, it's been winter for a very long time. It does seem like there is no hope. And yet, Mr. Tumnus does let her go, and we'll find that out in the next few paragraphs. Um, and you're kind of curious why. Because it kind of seems like he's already identified himself as a bad fawn. He already feels like he's done it, because he's kind of referring to this thing that he hasn't even done yet, because it's already been committed in his mind. Um, and then somehow Lucy convinces him that he doesn't have to do this and to not do that. Yeah, that's true. And it's an interesting. You're right. I hadn't thought of it like that, that he's already like kind of condemned himself before the act has ever happened. We're not, you know, given an answer as to whether he's kidnapped children before. I mean, do you feel like that's been made clear? I feel like that's kind of up in the open. Like, has he done this before or has he just had this job? And I, I, f- right? I feel like he hasn't because he said he's never met exactly. a son of Adam okay. or a daughter of Eve. And that's yeah, the only, oh, that's right. The only thing he's been asked to, <laughs> to catch and hand over to her. He's, you know, distraught over this idea of what he might do. Like, he hasn't, he still hasn't done it yet, right? He hasn't sent word to the White Witch or any of her servants or anything yet. Like, he's just thinking about doing it. And then so I just, as I was reading through this, just this past last time, that kind of jumped out to me. And so, I, you know... It, 
a lot of this is going to be stuff we might be reading too much into, and that's totally fine. That's what's enjoyable is that I'm still kind of finding that passage speak to me in that way, and that might not be how a listener's hearing it speak to them. Sure. And we'd love to hear what other people do think. Feel free to email us. Yeah. So you're right, Phil. After this, you mentioned it in your summary, they do go back. Um, but before we get to that handkerchief, which uh, we'll talk about, there's one line that I just I love as they're leaving. And uh, Mr. Thomas says, we must go as, qu- as quick, as quietly as we can. The whole wood is full of her spies. Even some of the trees are on her side. Do you remember this line like as a kid? I do. That's one of the few lines that has stuck with me since at least third grade. It's like, well, how do trees have ears? And that's such a terrifying thing. It's like the walls in your house having ears. Like <laughs> they they hear every single thing, like singing to yourself, saying something out loud, thinking out loud. So our cell phones and Google Home and Alexa and all that now. <laughs> yeah, and we're definitely getting there. I think yeah. we've got about one more year of privacy left left. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little free, but um, yeah, I just love this, and um, again, it's one of those, you know, it's kind of another reminder that that Lewis is not filling out his world fully. He's leaving a lot to our imagination. He doesn't tell us how the trees are spies. If are they, you know, in what ways are they anthropomorphized? Are they, or not? I guess they're not animals. In what ways are they personified? I should say, are they? Can they actually move around? Are they like ants? Are they? Can they talk or are they just in this kind of magical way able to – like we don't know these things in chapter two of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that's actually almost creepier that we don't know exactly what they are. Right. So then, Phil, where do we where do we kind of land the plane here? Yeah, right at the end of the chapter, um, we have lessened the tension a little bit. It seems like the fawn has walked her to the lamppost. He's like, can you forgive me? She's of course I can. You know, she's very young, very forgiving. And – but for some reason, he says, can I, he says, perhaps I may keep the handkerchief. And then this is also strange to me. Lucy says, rather. And I guess that's a British thing, but that's not an answer <laughs> to me. Um, and then obviously he does keep it. But you're left wondering why. And um, is this going to come back into play another time? Almost everything in stories that are published from what I've seen and read, if a detail is mentioned like that, it's going to come back later. So I'm excited to see what happens. And I'm trying to go through the book, pretending at least to myself that I don't know everything that's going to happen. Well, I mean, Phil, why do you think that she that he keeps it? Like, what, like, what do you think's motivating him to want to keep it? To me, it seems like evidence. It, you know, okay. like, uh, like just in case, like, you know, oh, they escaped, but you know, held on to their handkerchief. I can't think of any other reason off the top of my head. How about you? See, Having no, read it 25 times. Yeah, no, I think I disagree. I think he's keeping it as a reminder of, you know, of what's happened today. So, like, yeah. if you go back to the way I felt about him kind of just feeling so distraught over this decision, like this was now, you know, quote unquote, a moral success, right? He did not kidnap a child. You shouldn't do that. And so this is a reminder that, look, when push came to shove, he made the right decision. And so I take it as being a reminder to him of Lucy. I think it's a reminder for himself, not, oh, I don't want to ever forget that girl I met for like three hours that one time. Because if she's also the only human he's ever met, he's not going to forget her. So I think it's more of a reminder for himself that he is, um, that he he made the right decision. Right. And I, I think that that matches with his personality as well, based on what we know about his home. It seems like it's a, a small space with a lot of stuff in it. 
um, but everything has meaning. He has a picture of his dad on the wall. Um, he has, you know, like a very warm kind of inviting space, and he probably has a lot of mementos based on what we're learning about him here. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I like that. I feel like you've helped me understand Mr. Tumnus more because I didn't pick up on how much his house was kind of speaking towards his character. So I think that's probably my big takeaway from this episode is how much Lewis puts Mr. Tumnus into his own house. And I, no. I had taken it mostly to be, oh, like he's telling us about his house so we can just picture it in our minds. But I like your kind of read on that, which is, no, we're learning. We do are learning more about his house, but we're learning about Mr. Tumnus through what's in his house. So that was a really, really cool thing for me. So we end chapter two here. Lucy's returning back through the wardrobe um, to England and is going to go tell... She shuts the door tightly behind her. Yep, and she's going to go tell her siblings what has happened. So that's where we'll pick up uh, next time with chapter three, Edmund and the wardrobe. So we're going to see what Edmund's interaction is with the wardrobe. Um, And in this chapter, Edmund's going to follow Lucy into Narnia and meet its queen. All right, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening along with us. You can follow us into the world of Narnia on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You can also email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on um, previous chapters or upcoming chapters, maybe some of the themes in the book, or even your own history and relationship with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We'd also appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other listeners find the show and join along with us. Our show's theme was created by Kevin McLeod. You can find more of his work in the link in the episode description. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you on the next episode.